Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Becky Orton. Becky is a 45-year-old mother, CrossFitter, and member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. I met Becky while coaching at CrossFit Juggernaut in New Hampshire before entering medical school. She and her daughter would work out together, and I initially thought they were sisters, a testament to her energy and love of life. During this conversation, we discuss motherhood and the story of her eight children, four biological and four adoptive, the experience of losing Ben, and the rewards of fostering medically fragile children. Before we talk more about Becky and this really great conversation that we have together, I want to talk about my long-form Sunday's posts. These are my weekly reflections of medical school from their very first anatomy lab of first year to now, uh, interview season, having a child, and uh, you can actually might be able to hear him cooing in the background as he's feeding. And uh, you can find these all in their entirety at, uh, I just recently changed domains, so you can look up uh, eugeneh.kim, uh, or you can go to, even to the old one, mnmwad.com, uh, mobility and mindfulness work of the day. I'm in the process of rebranding, and uh, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Some, some changes are, are coming up ahead. Anyway, on uh, November 25th, 2018, I published On the Third Trimester, or Baby Chronicles, Part 3. This week, I reflected on the third trimester. Uh, On that day, my partner began labor, and I considered the many changes ahead and already done. Then, on uh, December 2nd, 2018, I published On a Birthday, or Baby Chronicles, Part 4. This week, I reflected on the labor and delivery of our son, Junsu Stefan Kim. So, uh, as I said again, you can uh, go to eugeneh.kim or mnmwad.com for all the posts uh, to read them online for free. Or you can go to Amazon, look up uh, On the Education of a Physician, or you can just type in Physician Education, and it'll be the first thing that popped up. These are collected, uh, all the collected first, second, and third year reflections in uh, either Kindle or paperback format for you. So, uh... Back to, or before let me, before we go back to Becky, I'll just do some more uh, housekeeping stuff. So this will be the final episode of the season. Um, I, I like to take, a, last year I started taking a break um, from, through winter, and then I'll resume in spring, and I'll do that again this year, especially with baby here. Uh, he's about a week and a half old right now, and I'm thinking it'd be really nice to take a little bit of a break for the from the podcast, at least releasing new episodes. So what I will be doing is I'll be re-releasing excellent interviews from the past uh, throughout this winter season. So don't you worry, it will we'll still be showing up in your podcast feed for you. Um, however, the next new episode will be on March 28th, uh, 2019, and that'll be right after I match for a residency. So I'll have all sorts of wacky stuff to tell you. But until then, don't worry, I'll still be show- throwing uh, good episodes into your feeds. So uh, back to Becky. Becky is a 45-year-old wife of 25 years, a mother to eight children, a CrossFitter, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, and a joyful person. Before Becky dies, she wants to serve a humanitarian mission with her husband and to, tr- and to travel to see her children. When Becky dies, she wants to leave behind a legacy of love. After Becky dies, she wants to see her children continue that legacy and just be good humans and make the world a better place. In conclusion, Becky says... There are so many children that need home, so many, especially with this drug epidemic. So many babies are being taken away. Obviously, I wouldn't go back and change my biological children, but had I known sooner, I maybe would have adopted in between having biological children. The need is just so great, and it is the most rewarding experience that you can have. And I say that 100%. I don't know what could be more rewarding than taking a child in that needs a home. I encourage people to do it. 
So this is, I, I had so much fun with this conversation. I knew Becky, um, as I mentioned before, from coaching CrossFit up in New Hampshire, and uh, I didn't really know about her fostering of children uh, up there. But then when I moved down to Florida for my first two years of medical school, I started seeing uh, on social media her posts about uh, the medically fragile children that she has in her life. And uh, I was like, A, that's a really great way to phrase somebody, uh, really, uh, really wonderful phrase to encompass, you know, all of these people that really depend on the medical system and on a lot of care. Um, so I really have kind of adopted that into my lexicon as well. And these the 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 challenges associated with it, you know, I see her going in and out of the hospital and we had initially uh planned for this interview a while back but uh then her, one of her one of her children i believe it was joe uh got admitted and she had to stay in the hospital and was like let's put put this on pause and we can hit hit um come back to this whenever whenever appropriate and then uh in between that first initial interview and then this actual interview uh or that first initial like kind of scheduled interview uh she adopted Liam, or uh, and this the the story about Liam and how he comes into their life is really wonderful. And I don't want to spoil it. Um, I just see that there's a you know there there are some people that I've interviewed for this podcast that have had a like a really wonderful story arc. That there's a that there's like there's this there's this struggle. There's a a low. And then there's uh, some sort of sign, and you can interpret this from a higher being, from from spirit, from God, however you want to describe it. But that there's something that's like there is this is a um, there's a sign that this is not just a um, that, that, that there's something happening here. And another person that this happened with was Jim Goodrow. He's a retired vascular surgeon, published that interview this season on uh, August 19th. And uh, with his son, Kevin, uh, you know, the, you, if you go back and listen to it, you'll, you'll, you'll understand what I mean. But with, with Liam, there's this, there's this like, oh, the, the story's, the story has kind of circled back and it is, um, it's not done by any means, but it is at that, at, definitely at a different phase than before and I really uh, was, I was crying during the interview she was crying during the interview it was with a lot of tears but it's because it was, there's a lot of life and a lot of love in her story and um, I think that there's just something really beautiful about the way that she talks about these spiritual confirmations about whether or not she should have these children in her life and then there's also uh you know, people talk about CrossFit, and and but I think that she ha she utilizes the 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 method of CrossFit, the community of CrossFit, in a way that other people don't. In that she needs to be a strong woman to to be a mother to these uh, four medically fragile children, and it's uh it's really or like three medically fragile, four four adoptive children, and uh, it's just really it's really beautiful. And uh, she she opens up about some of her medical history that I I was really grateful to to receive because uh, these are things that women don't talk about in terms of losing pregnancies and and uh you'll see and it's it's just a really great conversation and uh, we, we were a little pressed for time because you know as a mother of eight children uh you know only four in the, are in the house and sticking around but it's still like there's a lot of lot of effort that needs to be done so i only got her for like a short hour and i really wish i could have gotten her for four uh and you know what maybe i'll, I'll come back circle uh, circle back with becky in, in another couple of years um maybe after hum the humanitarian mission maybe after uh you know as as her our medically fragile children pass it's it's really um uh, she's a beautiful person and and she's really an inspiration, especially now as I've become a father, um, just seeing 
how much strength she has. Like, I didn't really appreciate it during the interview, but now I'm really starting to see, like, oh, my son, Junsu, is a... I was just talking with Mackenzie about this before I recorded. My, our son, Junsu, is pretty easy. And, you know, we're, we're still struggling with sleep, lack of sleep, and, like, his fussiness. But, however, he's still a pretty easy baby, and I can't... Uh, I, I, I'm just really in awe of her strength as a mother, and I'm really starting to understand how much uh, motherhood is a real hard road to walk. Um, so anyway, I hope that you are real jazzed and ready to listen to this great conversation with Becky Orton on death. It is October 31st, 2018, Halloween day, and I'm sitting here in my Coopersburg home and Becky Orton is sitting in the driveway to her Guilford, New Hampshire home. And we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Becky, what are the four prompts? The four prompts are I am before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. Excellent. Now, how do you finish that first prompt, I am? I am a 45-year-old wife of 25 years. I am a mother to eight children, four biological and four, um, well, almost four are adopted. Mm -hmm. And I am a CrossFitter. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. And I am a joyful person. Yes, you are. Okay, so we got we got a lot of good ground to cover. So um, mm-hmm. the first thing you mentioned on that list is you are a wife of you are forty five years old and a wife of twenty five years. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, loaded, <laughs> loaded, wacky question, of course. But what was marriage like from year one to year twenty five? Like what? Oh. Like yeah, how do you wow. even how do you even compare what the what the what you've learned about what it means to be in marriage, like all that stuff? Wow. A huge difference. I mean, going into marriage at such an early age, it was, um, I I think I was really naive. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I have learned that I married the right person. Mm -hmm. And he is the most amazing, supportive husband that I could ever ask for. So Mm -hmm. as marriage has um, increased in years, um, that realization to me has increased as well. And especially at this point in my life, um, I feel very, very lucky to have him. So, yeah, and it sounds like uh, you know things that we'll touch on later. It sounds like you had some, some tragedies, some difficulties mm-hmm. along the way, and uh, I'm really yep. to see how uh, we will touch back on how that those those events affected your relationship and how it sounds like you use that to grow together rather than apart, which is absolutely a, a very important thing to to note. Yep. Okay, yep. so uh, you're, you got married at a young age, um, yep. and uh, I, I mean, I, this, this to me at least goes in in part with your religious faith and background. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, what was what was the spiritual background of your childhood? Um, so, I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. We are Christian. Um, I am a strong um, faith based person. My parents raised me to be that way. I have a large family that I come from. Um, I have six other biological siblings and a few adopted as well as probably over 50 foster children that my mom fostered over the years. And so, um, yeah, so we, we had a lot of kids in and out of our house growing up and it was a, and actually it was a mostly positive experience as hard as it was. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's not something that I would wish differently. Um, I, I think it kind of shaped me into who I am today. And, um, you know, I think part of our religion is very family based. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we 
focus a lot on the family. And so from a very young age, just, um, I think instinctively, I just wanted that for myself and I wanted to be a wife and mother more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Had no interest in a career. I like being a mom is what I wanted to be. So. And it sounds like you jumped into that with like all the, the fervor and professional, like, um, <laughs> like grit that, re- that is required to be, to really be the mom. It's, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so like, uh, just a little thing, something you probably didn't know about me, but uh, when I was growing up, um, for, through like middle school through high school, my parents uh, would have Korean children come over to from from Korea to stay with us. When we would we wouldn't foster them, but they would stay with us for like a season, like a winter or a couple years as they learned English and and oh, wow. applied to college. So um, and we had like up to like I think twenty children at, uh, staying at one point, but we also had like three two or three kids that stayed for like four or five years. So wow, so, so you had kind yeah. of siblings like me <laughs> yeah yeah just like I understand like that well, I, I I can at least imagine what it's like to have that kind of revolving door very fluid mm-hmm. family kind of sensation going on um but I, I imagine a lot of listeners don't you know they might have right. brother sister mother father maybe a couple aunts and uncles but like what was and and it's hard for you to describe what it was like because you don't know what 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 different experience there was so uh but like what uh what did you learn from all of that growing up in such a, a fluid household? Um, so, I mean, I, like, I absolutely loved having, having siblings, especially mm-hmm. my biological siblings. Um, it was hard having, um, foster care, foster kids, um, as siblings, mostly because they came with a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. But, um, the thing that I respected about my parents, um, was that they would always sit us down together as a family before they took in another foster child. And they would say, this is the situation. This is the child. This is what's going on. I mean, obviously they wouldn't tell us everything, but um, as much as they could tell us. And then they would say, are you, you know, how do you feel about, about having this child come into our home? And, and hundred percent, every time it was yes mm-hmm. for us, you know, we were excited, we were on board, but, you know, as a normal, um, child, I would say that after a few weeks, you know, the, the newness wore wore off and then it was like, okay, can they leave now? (laughs) But, but for the most part, like I said, it was very positive and, you know, my mom did a lot of good for these children in their lives. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And it helped me to like, also want a large family. Like I told myself, I always wanted seven children. I didn't, I didn't actually know that I was going to do foster care. I actually thought I probably wouldn't because the um, it's very, it can be very difficult on biological children when you bring in kids with a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I walked away unscathed from that, but I have heard, you know, other stories where it has affected biological children in the home. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you know, kind of be careful. And my mom learned from experience with that, where she would usually, um, try to have the opposite sex and an older, like either much older, or much younger than some of the children that were in her home at the time. So she kind of like, you know, had a good balance of who she oh, needed. Oh, I see. Like being very have. intentional about the dynamics that she's creating. Yes. Because that. she learned like when you had the same sex, the same age, you know, there was a competition mm. between the siblings. And so that made it very difficult. So she tried to avoid as she as she grew and matured in her fostering, you know, she learned from experience. And so she, I thought she did very well with that. Mm-hmm. So, wow. yeah. yeah. 
so um, I'm also struck by, you know, and, and this is something that I understand about uh, the, the, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints is that they are, they are very, very family focused and in a way that yes. um, people from, from the outside looking in might not understand. And I mm -hmm. think that one way that I'm really struck by it is sort of the way that your mother and that you are walking the walk, not just talking the talk about like, you know, supporting the people around you, but actually taking people from outside your home, taking them inside your home and really, and giving them love and helping and giving them a family, at least for a little bit, um, and sometimes mm -hmm. for, the rest of, for their whole life. And uh, I'm really struck by that because that's, you know, it's, it's easy for me to like donate $20 to <laughs> you know, like a, you know, the wildlife fund, but it's a whole different thing for me to go and stop people from cutting down trees, you know, and that's sort of like the, that's the difference that you have there. And so what, uh, what, what is the experience of walking the walk? Oh, it's been amazing. I mean, you know, it's hard. Mm. It's very hard, but, um, it's very rewarding. And, um, you know, obviously I chose it. Mm-hmm. Although I have to say that, I, I mean, I, I did choose it, but I also feel like um, my path was kind of guided that way, mm -hmm. you know, and I think um, a lot of it stemmed from my fourth child, Ben, who I lost. So, yeah. And so um, I think this is a good point to start to at least <clears throat> talk about your children and maybe Ben a little yeah. bit because... Um, you're the, you know, you're the uh, wife of uh, 25 years, 45 years old, and then you started talking about your kids, right? And then you, but then you also mentioned before the interview that the transition to adoption and fostering was uh, after the death of Ben. Yep. And so, um, yep. you know, tell me about like what the difference between raising that first child, you know, take like bringing that first life into the world to the most recent uh, one, Liam, uh, you know, this, this fostering adoption, you know, like all that, that wackiness in between tell me a little bit about it <laughs> it's a long story but mm -hmm. um so my first child Kayla I was 22 years old when she was born and um I remember even though it was a really hard pregnancy um and even delivery the minute she was born I was like I want another one I, I just I, this is fantastic like this baby you just like instantly love them and you're just like oh my gosh if I love her this much you know what is it going to be like to have other kids and like I told you I wanted to have a big family and so I mean I was like just full full force from the beginning on motherhood I just mm -hmm. was like you know give me all the kids <laughs> and so um I had my my four my oldest four pretty quickly because um when Kayla was, I think, 14 months, I delivered my second. Oh, wow. Yeah, you really were like, let's get these kids going. <laughs> <laughs> so Caleb was born. And um, so he was my second born. And then um, he was like two, I think, when Stevie was born. And then they were they were a little bit further apart as I went along. But Ben um, was my last biological child that How I had. So when Ben was born, I was 27, I think. Okay. Or 28. Yeah. I remember going to my 10 year high school reunion and, and everyone was like, wow, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just getting a career and you have four children, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, um, had my, my fourth child, Ben, who, um, do you want me to dive into that? Yes, please. That whole story. Yeah. So, um, my first three children were, I, I hate to use the word normal because what is normal, but you know, they were, I guess, as normal as you could be. Mm -hmm. And, um, Ben, when I was pregnant with him, 
um, I had a lot of different movements inside of me that I thought felt like what I would describe as seizures. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure. Um, I approached my four different doctors from my practice about it. And they each were like, that's normal. A lot of women describe movements that way. And I was like, okay, but this is my fourth and you know, this isn't normal. So I think, you know, from the get go, I had that mother's instinct that something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And, but, um, and I'm sure nowadays, you know, an ultrasound would have done been done pretty quickly, but, um, I also liked not knowing what the sex was going to be. And so I wanted to be surprised. And so, I mean, I think they might've offered me an ultrasound at one point, but I turned it down. Um, and so when I delivered Ben, um, they didn't know right away that anything was wrong, but as like the minutes literally passed, things just like were not going very well. And, um, you know, they had taken him back and I was getting stitched up and they kept coming back in and, and saying, you know, well, we think this, or we think that. And, um, you know, and then eventually the news kept getting worse and worse. And finally they were going to ship him up to Dartmouth and they felt like he was having seizures. So they wheeled me in when the transport team came and, I got to say goodbye. Um, how, how long postpartum is this? The, the Like within two hours. Oh, shoot. Yeah, it was fast. Like when I say literally minute by minute by minute, it, the news just kept getting worse. Um, so I was wheeled in there and I remember watching him and he was having what they were called, what was called myoclonic jerking. And I said, that's what I felt inside of me, exactly what he's doing. Um, and so they loaded him with some seizure medication, sent him up to Dartmouth and I was forced to stay the night in Laconia at the hospital. They wouldn't let me leave. So the next morning they finally allowed me to go and my husband went up and spent the night with him. But when I saw him for the first time, he was, um, he was hooked up to an EEG. He was intubated. He had like all the tubes and wires, um, you know, probably like one of the most stressful, uh, intense scenes that you could ever witness with your child, Mm. especially being, you know, brand new. And, um, so we had a long, long meeting with the doctors and they told us basically that, um, after, you know, a bunch of tests that they ran on Ben, that his brain didn't develop when I was pregnant with him. Mm -hmm. Um, it was some sort of genetic, like autonomal recessive gene that both Steve and I carried. Um, and so anyway, um, you know, at first they told us that he wouldn't live, he wouldn't come off the ventilator. And so we had to kind of prepare ourselves mentally for that. And we brought our children up twice, um, to say goodbye. And literally the day after we had done that, um, I remember the doctor sitting across from Ben in his vent and I was holding him. And, you know, I would always get nervous because, you know, it just seemed like as the time passed, like you would just get worse and worse news. And so I was, I was ready for some more. And he looked at me and he goes, I think he's going to be able to come off the ventilator and breathe on his own, which they didn't think he would. Mm -hmm. And so from there, it kind of gave me like this first glimmer of hope for him. And I was like, I don't care what he's like. I just want to take him home. That was my, like, if I can just take him home, then I'll, I I don't care, Mm -hmm. you know, what it entails. We'll take care of him. And so, um, surprisingly for as severe as it was, um, he was only in the intensive care unit for 11 days. So 
he was extubated probably five or six days after birth. And then, um, you know, we, we spent a few days getting him to take his feeds by mouth, which was really difficult. And looking back, I laugh at myself because I was so determined to feed him by mouth and thinking that that was what was best for him. And, um, but after months being home, you know, he ended up with a G tube. So, which was, you know, the best thing for him. Mm-hmm and required lots of medication, required lots of hospital stays. Um, he eventually received a trach, a trachea at 15 months old, um, because he was just really struggling with his airway. Uh, he was, um, he, his biggest issue was his respiratory, um, system and because he would get a lot of pneumonias. And so we probably spent like a third of our year inpatient in the intensive care units every year, like just off and on, you know, so local hospital or were you? No, this is Dartmouth. This is Dartmouth. So they became our second home. We became very close with them and they were fantastic. And they were like our second family. It's like 90 minutes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, and Ben lived till he was eight. He finally um, passed away uh, at, I was actually at my sister's house with my kids for the weekend when it happened. And, um, it happened in the middle of the night and, um, probably something that was not, I did not expect, not that I didn't expect his, um, him to pass away, but just, I envisioned being in the hospital with him when it happened. And so it was kind of a shock and not being in my own home, um, was hard, but my sister was fantastic through it all. Uh, my husband came down as fast as he could when he heard. And, um, that was probably one of the hardest days of my life, obviously, because even though you expected it, it still was a shock, you know, when it happens, cause you didn't know it was coming. So he kind of went quietly in the night and, but I was in, he was in my bed. So, you know, we kind of had like an ideal situation in an unideal situation. So yeah so that's the story of Ben and um but I remember before that happened I started having a desire to possibly one day foster or adopt other medically fragile kids because as hard as it was um it was such a rewarding experience and I loved it um I loved taking care of him I loved being his caretaker it was a 24/7 job Um, but it was, like I said, very rewarding. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Just a couple, just a couple things that I want to touch back on, uh, about the, Mm -hmm. his story is, so he, you said he made it to the age of eight Mm -hmm. and, uh, he, he died at your sister's house Mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. uh, Yep. Massachusetts. Okay. Yep. And uh, it w- there was no like prodromal like kind of uh, decrease of anything. He just kind of passed. Yep. Oh dear. But and so one thing, uh, as as I told you before the call, I was on the hospice and palliative care uh, team at the hospital here at Lehigh Valley. And for that month, it was you know I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about you know how training and painful these conversations are. And um, mm-hmm. I just I guess a question for you, and I, I think I, I think I know the answer, but I, I still <laughs> want to pose it is. Um, I see so often uh, the you know these conversations happening about like you you know getting the family together and then say mm-hmm. you know you know ostensibly seeing seeing the person for the last time, and it sounds like that happened to you twice. 
uh, mm-hmm. very early on in Ben's life. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and, and there, there's a certain beauty in being able to prepare for it like that. And mm-hmm. then there's also the eight years of life and struggle and, and hardship that you endured to get him to that eight, to those eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just don't even like, is, I, I don't imagine you would ever trade those eight years of life with him, but I guess no. I wonder like, uh, like, I don't even know what question I'm asking. I'm just trying to explore this idea. <laughs> you know, uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, uh, it was just such, I don't know how to explain it, but, um, I had a lot of spiritual experiences through his eight years. Mm-hmm. And one of them, if you don't mind me, please, telling you about this, please, please. Um, one of them being that um, I knew when we were taking him home that he would at least live until he was two. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I had that, like I said, hope, um, like I did when I found out he would come off the ventilator. I had that glimmer of hope and I knew that he would be with us for two years of age, like that spiritual confirmation. And then after his second birthday, um, I received a second one that would say he would live until he was eight, at least until he was eight. And so up until that point, um, I remember having many conversations with my mom because my mom's very um, black and white and she loves to like be a realist. And so she would often say, you know, where are you going to bury Ben? Where are you going to, you know, what are you going to do for funeral arrangements? And I would always say, mom, I don't want to talk about it. I'm just like, that's not what I want to focus on. I'm not ready. Um, because she in the hospital, when we, when, you know, he was first born, she told me that she and my dad purchased three plots and she, you know, didn't really know why. Um, but after Ben was born, she was like, you know, maybe this is why we ended up buying three plots. And so she offered that, you know, if you would like to bury him with us, we would love for you to do that. And then off and on through the eight years, it was always, you know, what are you going to do? Have you bought, you know, a a plot yet? And, and I would continue to continually say, mom, I'm I'm just not, I'm not there yet. And, um, I remember like in the spring, so Ben was born in April. So his birthday was in April and in the spring of before he turned eight, I all of a sudden just like had this feeling that it was coming. Mm. Um, I knew sorry so I knew that that it was coming and I just had this feeling and but I also had this overwhelming peace that came over me and I was able to start talking about it. Like I was in this, like, you, you know, those, those roles of grief where you have acceptance and denial and all that kind of stuff. I feel like I was in that acceptance phase and I was okay with it. And so my husband and I started talking about his funeral and we started talking about where we wanted to bury him. And I was finally able to tell my mom, you know, we want to bury him with you guys. And so we were able to have those confirmation, those conversations that I was not able to have before. And, and I also had a conversation with his neurologist. Um, he was in the hospital like March. And like I said, he turned eight that next month. And I told him, I said, I just know it's coming. And so he passed away like a month and a half after his eighth birthday. 
So it was, like I said, it was still a shock, but it was not a shock at the same time because I knew it was coming. So anyway, so I've had a lot of experiences like that with him. And it's just been like such an amazing experience having a child with medical needs because it doesn't just affect my husband and I, but you know, my kids grew up with it and it has made them just amazing kids. You know, they're so much more compassionate. They're so much more accepting of, you know, everybody and their hearts are huge and they love kids with disabilities. So, you know, he was, Ben was a great teacher to our family. Mm. Uh, so it sounds like, I think, and I think the, the question I was formulating in my head was uh, with, with, with this, with these lovely bits of, of vulnerability that you've shared is, is that I, I wondered, I guess, would you have wanted him to have gotten sick so that you would have had that pre- preparation time to really do it? But it sounds like you did on, in a, in a way that was not spurred on by tragedy mm-hmm. or, or right. Um, and so that when he passed, it was, it was more of a like, okay, the, all that work was worth it. And mm-hmm. that all, all those conversations you needed to have were worth it. Yep. I want to circle back though. And, and we've, we've talked around, we've talked about like the, the practical applications of your faith in spirituality in terms of like, you know, the adoption and like the, walking the walk. But, uh, I'm, I'm very interested to hear about those, those messages that you received at when he was two and eight. And uh, I want to know, like, can you, would you be comfortable elaborating? Yeah. Um, so we, um, believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in God and we believe in the Holy ghost. Mm-hmm. And, um, we believe that the spirit can prompt you can, um, you know, not necessarily, it's not like you hear voices, but you have thoughts mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I truly believe that that was um, Heavenly Father's way of allowing me to prepare for his passing. And so he, you know, would prompt me with those thoughts and those feelings and of being prepared so that when the time came, it wasn't, you know, just like life ending. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to mentally prepare for that. So, um, you know, that's part of um, our religion and what we believe. And Um, you know, there's a, I mean, I can, I can dive a little bit into, um, you know, what we, what we believe after death, because I don't believe that this is it. And I know that I know, you know, I believe with all my heart that I will see Ben again and that he will be whole, Mm. you know, Mm. um, we believe that, that we are here for, um, you know, to be tried, to be tested. And that was Ben's test Mm -hmm. was to be in a, a, a limited body. Um, and he did a great job and, you know, I think he passed with flying colors. Um, so <laughs> everyone has their own trials and, and challenges and that was his, and that was part of our families. So, mm. and either you, you fall apart or you grow stronger because of it. And I know for a fact that we have become stronger mm. because of it. So. Yeah. And, uh, and we will, we got, we got a whole prompt for the after you die part. Mm-hmm. So we will, we will definitely dive into that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that it's, you know, the, the perspective that you're talking about in terms of the compassion that your children have, uh, towards others, um, mm-hmm. as a result of, 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 of fostering, you know, I think it's, it's a very beautiful thing. Like, uh, you know, if you have all these healthy kids, they don't, 
you know, like it's just, it's it require it, it it creates a different relationship that they have with health where it's taken for granted for mm-hmm. understanding like mm-hmm. how how difficult how difficult can it be to simply stay alive. And mm-hmm. I think that is a very important and powerful message to give to children. And whether that's that's sustaining life through a medically fragile individual or whether it is, um, you know, taking them on a hunt and, and understanding like that for every life requires death. And so it just mm-hmm. I think that that connection to the greater greater hoop of life is really important. I'm, I'm just profoundly in awe of the of the difficulty with which that was learned. But I think that makes it a very earned lesson. Yep. Absolutely. And, and it's so, funny because when you, you, you know, when you are little, like when I was little, it was not, you know, I'm going to be a, a mom of a medically fragile child. You know, that's not what I would have chosen for my life. And that's where, you know, you hear like, I don't know if you've heard sayings before where, you know, um, like God kind of chooses our path and helps us along the way for what he feels like, you know, is best for us because what I experienced what I felt my life, you know, the way, let me, let me <laughs> think about this for a second. The way that I would have foreseen my life going is not the way it obviously ended up, but looking back, I would not change it. I would not have it any other way. And I know that he knows what's best for me and my family. So, mm-hmm. so it makes having these trials and these situations, um, it puts it in perspective, I think. And makes it a little bit more easy to handle, to bear. So, and I think uh, you also mentioned like uh, there's a note of uh, it. It has made your family stronger, and mm-hmm. uh, I want to touch on that the literal way because you also mentioned that you're a CrossFitter, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is one way you physically become stronger. And I just want to yeah. understand because I, as we talked about uh, before the interview started, is I kind of met you and coached you when you were very early on in that journey. And so I just want to yeah. understand like what's going on there. Oh, so I've always um, been athletic. Um, I played basketball and soccer in high school. Um, I was a thousand point scorer for my high school basketball team. So the first one in my high school, actually. So um, (laughs) (laughs) that's my claim to fame. But um, I just have always loved being active and, and healthy and Um, you know, it's a little bit harder when you get out of high school and college, because then you kind of have to like force yourself and, and be disciplined that way. And being a mom, um, I kind of like ebbed and flowed through it all. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I would find different avenues to, to work out or to try to stay healthy and fit. But honestly, um, you know, since I have found CrossFit, um, it's been like probably my most consistent, um, regime. And it's also made me probably the healthiest and the fittest that I've ever been in my whole life, even in high school. So I love that. I feel strong. I feel healthy. Um, and I can say that without a doubt, my main reason is because I have medical, uh, medically fragile children. Um, currently I have a 13 year old who's 90 pounds. And so I have to lift him up and down stairs and in and out of cars. And, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's, it's hard. And even being as physically fit as I am, it's still hard. Like, you know, I tell Joe all the time, like, Joe, why are you so heavy? <laughs> I, lift, <laughs> I lift every day and you still feel heavy. So I can't even imagine if I wasn't doing these things and, mm-hmm. you know, um, I just, I, I want to stay healthy for my kids for as long as I can. So so that is my main reason for crossfitting. 
Mm. And um, yeah, there, I, I see a lot of beautiful uh, reasons for you to get into this uh, because mm -hmm. it, you know there's the functional, but then there's mm -hmm. also the like uh, the, the the like the individual empowerment level of it as well. Yep. Yep. Um, I guess uh, what what has have you like what has your relationship been uh, ha like has it changed in terms has your has your relationship with your own body or with with fitness with the barbell like what what where have the changes been and how do you notice that um so before crossfit i don't think i ever lifted a barbell ever and you know i always considered myself fit you know running or hiking or whatever but um the barbell is I have come to love it. I absolutely mm -hmm. love the barbell and I love the way it makes me feel strong. So CrossFit is just one of those um, programs that like I've seen literally change lives and it definitely changed mine for the better. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And there's also the community aspect of it as well. Yes. Going to the gym, going to juggernaut. Yes. Um, is yes. that, a, is that a lovely, like little reprieve for you to be able to yes. kind of, like drop everything else and be like, I'm just going to be Becky for a little bit. The thousand yep. meter, you know, Ab Absolutely. You know, it's funny because with this latest, you've mentioned him briefly, but Liam is our latest, um, kind of foster child. And we had, we had to redo our home study and in the home study, it talks about, you know, what do you do for stress and or stress relief or whatever. And my number one answer always is to CrossFit mm -hmm. every day. I mean, I go, I make time for myself every day. Um, I do rest two days out of the week, so I shouldn't say every day, but five days a week consistently. I have, um, you know, for three plus years now, I have probably missed maybe a handful of times out of those three plus years going. So I am very consistent with doing what I need to um, mentally prepare for the day and, you know, to take on all the challenge and challenges and needs of my family. Mm -hmm. So CrossFit is a huge part of my life. Mm, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, um, I also feel like there's some level of like, uh, <clears throat> of, uh, you know, like you, like the, the space dictates what fills it and mm -hmm. uh, and i see that in in your family like the you know the 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 loss of of ben but also how that made you grow and that made you able to grow your family with these medically fragile children uh, mm -hmm. but i also see that in terms of you and your your physical capabilities like with crossfit like it, it it's challenging but it allows you this space to grow and to be capable in ways that you that might have been too challenging before like having this 90 pound medically like hauling him you know moving him around mm -hmm. i just mm -hmm. see i see a lot of parallels where like you might not feel like you would do this in the future you might not feel like you could have done it in the past but mm -hmm. uh, but your capabilities are usually exceed your perceived limitations at least that's absolutely yep yeah very much so Okay, yep. and so we, I uh, think, on the list of things that you, how you finished the prompt, I am, it was a 45-year-old, 25-year wife, um, four, uh, four kids, four adopted, um, and uh, the CrossFitter, and then there was something else. At religion. Religion, yes, and we, we yep. covered that a little bit, and we'll definitely dive more into it. Mm -hmm. As we, is there anything else on that list? That I was, that I'm a joyful person. Oh, you're a joyful person, yeah, talk about that. How is that, I, uh, yeah. I just, I love being happy. And I think <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I prefer being happy than otherwise. And I feel like I do a pretty good job on a daily basis of, um, 
you know, doing those things that bring me joy and, you know, kind of tying in a little bit with my religion. Um, you know, it like my favorite word is perspective. And, you know, people might look at my life and think, man, I, ooh, I don't want that, or I could never do that. But I also can look at other people's lives and say, man, I'm so glad that I have the life that I do. And it makes me appreciate not having, you know, um, like myself, a physical handicap or a mental handicap or whatever it is that other people have challenges with, you know, um, people might look at my life and think that it's really hard, but I can look and at, you know, pretty much anybody and think, okay, I'm glad that I have what I do. And I'm going to be happy in my life because I'm glad that I don't have what they have, you know? So perspective is one of my favorite words. It always kind of grounds me. So, yeah. And my mom was a happy person, Oh, that helps. you know? Yeah. So, you know, growing up with a positive, happy, uh, you know, she would sing a lot and she would always, you know, try to see the positive. And so that's what I try to do with my family. So, cause life is good. It's, it's great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's hard. And, it's super hard, but it can also be great. So, yeah. And so I think you, you kind of address this already, um, but the, the kind of avenue that I want to go down is um, it sounds like your mother role modeled happiness and, and joy uh, so that it sounds almost like you, you kind of had that personality trait from the beginning and you've sustained mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and along those lines, I wonder um, with the tragedy of Ben, um, like, was that challenged? Was that, was that strengthened? Like, how, like, how is that being a joyful person? How was, you know, the crucible experience of losing a child? How, yeah. does, how is that affected by it? Well, um, so I, obviously it, it was hard. It was one of the hardest things that I'd ever gone through. But again, um, you know, I, I am a very, very faith-based person mm-hmm. and I, um, put a lot of stock into the things that I believe. And I know, you know, that I'll, like I mentioned before that I'll see Ben again. And so that, you know, is a comfort in itself. And I know that I just have to do what I'm supposed to be doing here now until that time. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it, I wouldn't say it challenged it. Um, just because like I said, you know, I had that belief beforehand and I knew, you know, it, it I think it, I don't want to say that it was an easier, um, death as opposed to somebody that like has this normal child and all of a sudden, like tragically they die in a car accident or something like Mm -hmm. that, where you don't have that time to prepare. I mean, I did have eight years of knowing, like, Mm -hmm. honestly, there wasn't a day that didn't go by when I had been that I was like, you know, how much longer, how much longer, like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and worrying about stuff like that. But I just feel like, you know, I did have those eight years to prepare and, and as hard as it still was, you know, I, it didn't, it didn't shake my faith. It didn't, you know, destroy me as a person. Um, having my husband who also believes the same way that I do. And, you know, um, I mean, I, I feel like I was more of a puddle during that time and he was my rock and he, you know, was there <laughs> to support me, but, you know, we, we obviously overcame and, um, you know, it's, it's not like we don't still miss them, but, I don't dwell on the loss. Um, one of my favorite quotes, I feel like I'm all over the place, but one of my favorite <laughs> quotes is, is Dr. Seuss. Um, and he says, don't, um, what is it? It's don't, now I'm drawing a blank. Don't cry because it's over, but smile because it happened or something like mm-hmm. that, you know? And, and that's how I feel. Like I don't, I don't spend my days crying 
you know, because he's gone, but I actually, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about all the good memories that we have of him and, and knowing that I'll see him again. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, so before we transition to the next prompt of before I die, I want to dive in a little bit to that transition from, from, you know, you know, you seeing that, that the end of Ben's life approaching and maybe a, a, a accepting within yourself, like, Oh, I might, maybe I could adopt, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then from Ben's death to that first adoption and, and taking that first, you know, medically fragile life into your, into your arms. What was, what was that journey like? Okay. So, <laughs> right. So after Ben died, um, I felt again, strongly, um, I felt like it was kind of, you know, um, a prompting again, that I should do foster care for these medically fragile kids. Um, I have to say that my husband wasn't hundred percent on board at the time. I think he felt like, you know, um, cause it's a lot on your kids, you know, they, they endured a lot. Um, but again, I feel like they also became stronger because of it. And so I was adamantly determined to, um, to do this. And I'm a very strong willed person and so <laughs> my husband knows that <laughs> he's very patient and, um, understanding of that, but I jumped right into, um, doing these foster care classes. And for anyone that has ever experienced this, it's a, it's a huge process. So you go through like six weeks of these intense classes. And then you have this like hundred page home study that you have to fill out and they come and they interview you. You have to have a health inspection and a fire inspection of your home. And, you know, there's just all these different processes that you go through. And it probably, probably took me close to a year to finish. And during that time, I, you know, there were days where I doubted myself, like, what am I doing? You know, my kids are all self-sustaining. I'm in a good place. Like, you know, why do I want to add more to my plate? Um, You know, so there were days where I doubted myself. So I think that kind of slowed the process down. But so I started in the fall of 2010, because Ben passed away in the May previous to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, was just about done in the summertime of 2011 when I got a phone call about Joe. Um, his name was Javante at the time and he was six years old and he was in a a foster home and they wanted respite care. And so that was my first call. And they were like, Hey, you know, would you be interested in doing respite care for this family? And I was like, okay, sure. Would you define respite care for people? So respite care is just, um, giving families a break for like a weekend, you know, so just because it is 24 seven care. So it just allows them to kind of have a break. So, um, the DCYF showed up in my door with all of his information. I never met him. You know, at that point I hadn't met him. Um, they brought pictures. He was adorable. And while I was sitting there on my couch, I had this impression that he was going to be ours. And I remember thinking like, what, this is crazy because he's already in a foster home and, you know, like they didn't want to give him up. And so why am I having these feelings? But I didn't say anything to anybody. We just kind of continued on with the process and we never got called from this family. Like they never called us. And so I kind of forgot about it. And then in August, so that was probably June in August, I got another phone call and it was for a safe Haven baby. Are you, do you guys know, do you know what a safe Haven baby is? Okay. So it's a law that was created to prevent, um, dumpster babies or babies that were discarded, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. unwant that were unwanted. And so they created this law so that uh, a pregnant woman could, 
anonymously give her baby up as long as she brought it to like a police department or a hospital or a fire department, somewhere that is safe, you know, for the baby. And so uh, Laconia got their first safe haven baby in like over 18 years. And so when that happens, the state, the baby becomes a ward of the state. And so therefore, um, you know, for whatever reason, we were called. And, um, you know, my first question was, is he medically fragile? And they said, no, he's, he's actually a healthy, normal baby boy. And I remember feeling a little bit scared because I was like, oh, well, that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> Surprisingly, because like, who doesn't want a healthy, normal baby boy, right? Mm-hmm. So I called my husband and he was like over the moon. You know, my husband who wasn't really on board with all of this, he was like, oh my gosh, yes. Because my husband was adopted as well. So oh. anyway, so Brady um, was our first baby and we brought him home at two days old. And, um, you know, he was immediately a uh, foster to adopt. So we knew that we'd be keeping him. And then um, probably a couple months later, I got another phone call from DCYF and and it was about Joe again. Um, And they said, you know, this family is still looking for respite care. I know you're really busy with the new baby. Is this something you still would consider? And I was like, yeah, sure. And again, we didn't hear anything from them until about um, December. The week after Christmas, I got a knock on the door from DCYF and they came in my door and basically said, Hey, would you be willing to adopt Javante? Like out of the blue, had never met him, you know, only had that one, uh, experience on the couch where they introduced kind of his background and stuff. And again, that feeling came over me that he was supposed to be ours. And so I, what I couldn't say no. <laughs> so I was like, yes, we'll take him." So again, I remember my husband was very, like really, you know, is this, this seems like a lot. And that's when uh, we sat down and had a long conversation and I, I cried and, you know, because I knew that this is what we were supposed to be doing. And I, you know, he, like, he was over the moon with Brady. Like, so I would tease him. I'm like, you love him more than your own biological kids, which was not true, but that's how excited he was about Brady. And I said, you know, Steve, um, had I not pursued this, that then we never would have had Brady. Like, I feel like Brady actually was the reason why we were supposed to do this. And that kind of opened his eyes. And from that point, he was like 100% on board because mm-hmm. he knew he knew that was right. So um, we, it was a long process with Javante, who we ended up naming, changing his name to Joseph. But um, it, from January to June, it was kind of a, a long transition process, but it, we finally got him in our home that following June. And then he was adopted like six or eight months later. And then um, we had a couple other uh, foster children, but um, I knew like with all my adopted kids, I've always had a spiritual confirmation. And with these couple of kids that we had um, in our home, I didn't have that. Um, and I never felt like they were supposed to be ours. You know, they were in our home for a period of time. Um, but I did have a dream about a little girl that was medically fragile and about two years earlier. And, um, my license had just expired and we got a phone call, like it would have been two years after uh, we got Javante. And, um, when I answered that phone call, they told me it was a little girl and, you know, she had medical issues. I had that, again, spiritual confirmation that that was the baby that I had a dream about. So 
you know, she obviously came home and, um, we got her at four months old and today she is four, just over four years old and she's been adopted as well. Her name is Mackenzie. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I think we talked about this before the interview started, but, um, you know, I told you that my husband and I got to a point after Mackenzie where we were like seven kids. I always wanted seven children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt like we were done and he felt like we were done, but obviously the Lord had different plans because, you know, here we are a year and a half later and, um, I've had phone calls from DCYF and I've, never, you know, had a problem turning them down. I don't like turning them down because of course I'd like to rescue all of the children. But, um, anyway, this phone call came, um, about a month ago and, uh, it was an interesting phone call because it was an old caseworker. And, you know, she says, Becky, there's this baby who's five months old and, you know, that we need to place. And I was like, Linda, I told you we're we're done. <laughs> and she's like, I, game, Linda. I know, I know. But, but, you know, I, I told, I told this other agency that, you know, I know this angel and, and I know <laughs> they'll be fantastic. And I was like, Linda, you up so good, stop, right? yeah, I was like, stop tempting me with babies. <laughs> but the whole time I'm thinking my husband's going to be like, no, and I would be okay with that. Um, and so jokingly, I sent this kind of Snapchat to my kids and my husband about this conversation, you know, fully expecting the, you know, no. Um, but when my husband got home and he actually didn't get the Snapchat till he got home and I watched him open it and I was waiting for it and it never came. And I was like, what is happening? Why isn't he saying no? And so then it just like, kind of like, he just smiled and that was it. And we didn't really talk about it that night. All we knew is it was this five, this five month old baby. That's all we knew. So I couldn't sleep that night. I could not stop thinking about this baby could not stop thinking. So then I wake up and Steve was already at work and he had sent me a text and he said, Becky, I don't know what it is, but I cannot stop thinking about this baby. And I was like, Oh no. (laughs) Oh no. Cause I was, you know, it's like one of those things where you don't want to admit it, but when your husband admits it, it's like, Oh, we're on the same page and this is not good. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote back and I was like, I same, I couldn't sleep. And so, um, DCYF promised me they would get me the information that day. And so about an hour later, after this conversation with my husband, they texted me the information and they said, we have the information that you need and it's a little boy. Uh, we didn't even know the sex at the, at that point. So they said, it's a little boy. His name is Benjamin and he was born in April. And that's when I just started crying. And so I sent that information to my husband and he wrote back and he's like, I'm crying. And I was like, I know, so am I. <laughs> And I was like, I guess we're getting a baby. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So we brought him home almost two weeks ago and he is a very, very, very sweet baby. He has, um, you know, some major brain malformation. He has what's called schizencephaly and polymicrogyria. So it's just a, um, you know, just to make it simple, it's just a, a malformation of his brain. So he'll probably be a lot like Joe and Ben. 
their full care. Uh, but he has been very, very difficult because he um, is very irritable and he has a lot of nerve pain in his brain. And so he doesn't sleep very well and he cries most of the day, most of the night. So it's been a huge challenge. And so it's just kind of one of those testaments to me where I think that Heavenly Father thought that my life was a little too comfortable. <laughs> I was, I was in a good place and I was cruising along and he said, time for you to grow a little bit. So here we are. And, you know, if it wasn't for that confirmation that he is supposed to be here, I think I would have a really hard time with it. But because I know he's supposed to be part of our family, you know, it's so easy to love him. And, you know, my husband's been beyond fantastic because there's days where I just, I've cried because it's been hard, but he picks me up and he takes over and he, he's that rock. When you're in the puddle. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am often. So I'm very lucky to have him. He's been very good. So, yeah, so that's where, that's my current situation right now. But like I said, you know, life is hard, but there's so many joyful and happy moments that make it worth it. So, so uh, respecting your time, um, I, I just want to touch on, on two things before we move on to the next prompt of, um, I wonder, um, Two things. One, the first one is, is, you know, when you found out this boy's name is Benjamin, yep. changing his name to Liam, what was that story about? Um, well, you know, because I already have a son, Benjamin, we actually kept it as his middle name and okay. kind of like in memory. And because mm -hmm. he, I really feel, you know, that was like the sticking point that would make us realize that yes he's supposed to be here you know i mean if of all the signs like mm -hmm. <laughs> how can mm -hmm. you ignore that so we did keep his middle name as benjamin um it was kind of a fun process because um you know when my kids were little they were not involved in name in the names of each other you know but um with this process we had a group message going because i have kids all over <laughs> and uh you know they were all excited about this new baby and so i was like hey we we need to come up with a name and um so they all helped in that process and my oldest daughter kayla um was the one that first suggested liam and she loved that name. And, and so after like three or four days of going back and forth with everybody, um, that's the one that we settled on. And, and when you look up the meaning, it, it, it says, uh, it means strong willed warrior and that's what he is for sure. Mm. So, so Liam Benjamin Orton will be his name. So that is his name. It's yeah. A good name. Yeah. And then the other question that I have for you is, and this might relate to the autosomal recessive nature of what caused Ben's issues in the first place. Is that, is that sort of why you, I mean, I guess it's a question and I'm, I'm projecting, of course, wild mm -hmm. speculation on my part is, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like a, a, a strong instinct after the loss of a child would be to have another child of your own. Mm -hmm. biologically. What, what was mm -hmm. that? Like, what was that question for you? Um, so yeah, that's something that I obviously haven't told you about and I'm a lot of people know, but some people don't. Um, but actually I did what, before Ben passed away, um, we actually lost two pregnancies at 20 weeks and 16 weeks, two baby girls. 
So, um, and after that second pregnancy, I, I just had a really, really, really hard pregnancy. I was, um, I had a port put in because of, um, super being super sick with a hyperemesis. So vomiting. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. And I was, I was on TPN. Yeah. Yeah. It was horrible. And so, um, Anyway, I just wasn't able to, for whatever reason, I don't know if it had anything to do with what Ben had or if it was just how bad my pregnancies were. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't sustain past the 20 weeks. And that second pregnancy that I lost, um, uh, ended up, um, having a hysterectomy, an emergency hysterectomy because I, I couldn't stop bleeding and I, yeah, so, so I was done. Yeah. And that's why, um, we consider Brady a miracle baby because, you know, how many people literally get a healthy baby boy dropped into their laps, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, we had a lot of people say, how do, how do I, how do I get on that list? <laughs> and it's like, uh, don't, there is no list. It's just, you know, it was a gift from God, really. Um, and I tell people it was my easiest pregnancy ever. <laughs> Get the phone call, and two days later, you have a baby boy in your home. So, yeah. Uh, quick question. I just want to time this, like, in, in my head, the timeline of things. So <laughs> there was Ben, and then there was the uh, Ben's death. Then there was kind of getting on board uh, with the fostering adoption process, that kind of like six-week year that you're talking about. Then you kind of heard about Joe. Then you got Brady. Uh, but where were these two pregnancies in that kind of that timeline? So actually, they were before Ben passed away. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, during yeah, that eight so, years. I yeah, so 2008, 2009, I lost the two. I, I had that emergency, emergency hysterectomy in 2009, and then Ben passed away in 2010. I see. So, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see. So yeah. Yeah. That's, and uh, yeah. So after Ben, you know, had passed away, I I wasn't able to have kids of my own anyway. I see. Got yeah. It. And then I was just like uh, choo choo on the adoption train. <laughs> yes. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it happened. I see. Yeah. If you want a big family, that's uh, yeah. That makes sense. Really, I mean, having like those awful pregnancies. Of course, I would do it again. You know, my kids have been worth it, but like having these adoptions is like, wow, it's so much easier. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, one of the, my funniest stories that I love to tell people is that I was into water skiing at the time when Brady, when we got, I actually was on the boat um, when I got the phone call for Brady and we, you know, brought him home on a Thursday and I was back out on Saturday. I had him at the dock in his little car seat and, um, you know, getting my stuff ready to go. And we had his life, little teeny infant life jacket on. And, but I had a blanket over his car seat. And I remember this woman was walking past and she was like, Oh, you know, you have a baby. How old's your baby? And I was like three days old. And she looked at me and I was like, I know, right? Like, cause I, you know, mm-hmm. didn't look pregnant. I didn't look mm-hmm. like I just had a baby. So I just ran with it. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like I, you're superhuman though. right yeah. yeah it's fine mm. so anyway yeah yeah and also you know there's this whole thing about like uh that you touched on really briefly is that like uh with Liam uh with how difficult his you know caring for him is it you know maybe you know the Lord thought you were a little too cozy and then like, mm-hmm. let's, just, let's just really test this lady and see mm-hmm. how strong her faith is and how strong she uh, really believes this it's a very funny thing because uh we like I just I feel that 
you know, like I talked about, like that's sort of like a theme within your life, it seems like. Mm -hmm. um, also, I under I feel that same thing as well, because we, uh, well, we were um, right before we were to find out about this child that we're about to have. Um, back in March, we were in the process of adopting this big, beautiful dog, Honey, um, yep. her owner. And so we got this dog and we're like, okay, great. We have a dog in our life. This is wonderful. Now we're going to have to go through all these changes and growth to like take care of this dog. And then a couple of weeks later, we find this you know positive pregnancy test. And we're like, holy crap, this is going to be <laughs> oh, up on the growth train because we're going to yep. grow it a lot. And it was just, yep. uh, you know, yeah. it, it kind of happens all at once, but it's uh that's, you know, these are periods of immense growth that I would not change, but they, it would be nice if they were spread out a little bit. A little right. Bit easier, but. but you'll find that through life. I mean, cause I'm a lot older than you and it just seems that that's just how life goes. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of like it ebbs and flows. You kind of get into this comfortable spot and then all of a sudden, boom, <laughs> and more growth. And then, you know, you kind of figure it out. So I keep telling myself, you know, this is going to pass because I've, this is a new experience for me. I've never had a, a like really crying, irritable, you know, no sleep kind of situation. All my kids have always been fantastic. And so it's a new, a new, uh, avenue for me. And I just tell myself that eventually this too shall pass, you know, and we'll get past this hard stage and, and I'll look back and be like, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm out of that. <laughs> uh, so. All right. So uh, how do you finish that next prompt? Before I die, I want. Uh, before I die, I want to uh, actually, one of my other dreams is to serve a humanitarian mission with my husband. Mm. So our church does offers a lot of missions. Uh, my children have served missions and, um, you know, it's very common for kids around the 19 to 23 year old age bracket to serve missions, but I got married. So I didn't, mm -hmm. um, two of my children have served missions, which I think is fantastic. And so that's one of my dreams, but I would love it to be like a more of a humanitarian and like in a third world country, mm -hmm. I've just always had that dream. So that's one of the things that I would like to do before I die. That's uh, a lot. I mean, I think you could argue that just, uh, you know, with this adoption process fostering, you know, you're doing, yeah. a, you're doing a long, you know, humanitarian. Yes. Uh, yes. Then I guess the question would be of like timing, because, you know, you have these people that mm -hmm. in your life that have some that, you know, they don't demand, but they require so much love and care yep. on a daily basis. Uh, what yep. uh, Have you thought about how you would literally time and schedule that? Well, I mean, obviously the children that I have, like their life expectancy is not as long as others. Um, and so I, I wouldn't leave them to do it. And so, you know, it would just depend on like how long, I mean, cause Mackenzie's her syndrome, she has what's called Odo it's O H D O. Um, and, and it's a rare syndrome. And so we don't know a whole lot about it. So I don't know like what her life expectancy will be. So, I mean, if it ends up that I don't end up serving a humanitarian mission in, in this lifetime, I'm okay with that. Um, because like you said, I'm, that's kind of what my calling is anyway. Um, but it just, it, I think it would be fun to do if I was able to do it. So. Yeah. Fun. Uh, you know, it'd be like a bonus. Like it'd be cool. It's yes. Plus, but, uh, yes. yes. And I, I guess, I guess, I mean, you know, you say that it'd be fun to do the humanitarian mission, but it's, I guess the question is like, I get, would this almost be like a vacation for you and your husband? You know? <laughs> Probably. Like, yeah. You, know, you have so much, yeah. you know, so much on your plate and like, yeah. 
would this be a way to go travel to an exotic place with your husband for a little while yes. but also help out? <laughs> is that sort of what's happening yes here? absolutely <laughs> yes very much so oh it's beautiful all right <laughs> so that's a great yeah that's a great you know uh before i die i want is there anything else on that list um just to be able to travel to see my children and as they marry and have kids i would love mm. to be able to because i'm i'm pretty sure they're probably not going to be my neighbors mm. um so i don't know where life will take them but i want to be able to travel and have that luxury of being able to see them and you know my future grandchildren mm. so no grandchildren my, nope uh, no yeah. my oldest is 23 so nobody's married yet gotcha so three in college Ah, I see. So it's, you know, they're in the pipeline, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and my oldest is a lot like me. So she, she wants to be a wife and mom. That's her greatest desire. So it'll happen. I guess uh, one question that I have for you going forward into that future of grandparenthood is like, um, you know, how, what would that, what would that even look like and feel like that transition? Because you're so very much within the parent space. Right? I know, you're, I know. Baby. So it's a, well, do you even know what it would feel like to be in that grand grandmother, grandparent role? Because it is such a very different relationship, right? But it's, right. you're also so much in the parent. So what do right. you think about that? I, you know, I, I, I'm okay that my kids are not there yet because I'm not there yet. And it's funny because my husband um, before Liam came along, you know, he was like, when are you guys going to get married and give me a grandbaby? And I was like, whoa, not there. <laughs> not there yet. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, at that point, Mackenzie was three. And, um, but you know, I, I think it'll still just be amazing and wonderful when it happens. I'm excited. Um, I can, I, I mean, obviously I, I can wait because I'm still, like you said, in that young parent mode with young children. Um, but I want to, um, be that grandparent for my kids when it happens, um, and not kind of be stuck in that parent role. I want to kind of transition and, and be that kind of grandparent that they want and that they need. Mm. So when, when it gets to that point, so I'll be ready when it happens. Yeah. It seems like you are, you are really receptive to the signals that are, you know, that they come to you when it's like time, time to move on, Becky. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Gotcha. <laughs> yep. All right. So uh, um, how do you finish that next prompt? When I die, I want. Um, when I die, I want to leave behind a legacy of love. Mm -hmm. You got me all emotional today, Eugene. I'm a I think psychiatrist. It's a, That's my job. <laughs> it's the lack of sleep, I think. I'm going to blame it on that. <laughs> but just, I just want people to know how much I loved. And I want that to be passed down to my children and their children. Mm -hmm. So, yep. And to be happy. So, because that's the most important thing, I think, is to just to love and to be loved and to be happy. So, yeah. Is that, um, is, is what, what would that look and feel like for them to know that as you're dying? Um, is it just through the, the, the legacy of, of all the effort time that you've put into all these people in your life and these relationships and maintaining them and, and being present for them? Or is it uh, like, would you want, is there like a message that, you know, like how, how will they know this legacy? Oh, I think it's through example. 
because, you know, I, I've talked a lot about my mom, but you know, that's the way I look at her. And, and I know that that's what she's left. She hasn't passed yet, but you know, she definitely has left a trail of love. Her legacy is love and all the people that she has cared for. I mean, I, you know, I didn't mention this, but aside from the foster kids, I mean, she was the type of person that would, you know, see a person in the grocery store that looked like they needed a a dinner and they would end up at our house, you know, complete stranger. Like, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I I kid you not, like this happened a lot, you know, somebody walking, walking in a snowstorm, you know, this old man, I remember we picked up on the way home from church and he came to dinners on Sundays for like a few months after that, you know? So that's just who she is. And that's who, you know, I've tried to emulate and I, I would love for my children to emulate that as well. Mm, yeah, that uh, leadership by example is yep. the strongest form of leadership. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess uh, a question that I have for you, and I think it might have been Ben, um, but was what was the, and especially since you, it sounds like your mother is alive, but I'm not sure about your father, but it's, what, yes. are, what are the deaths that have affected you greatly? Um, honestly there, you know, I still have my parents, um, you know, I, I've lost my grandparents, but I don't feel like they were like significant, um, everyday roles in my life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was sad, but, um, really it was, uh, Ben, Mm -hmm. I think, I think really is the most significant. Sorry. Are you there? I'm still here. My, my son was calling. Um, so I feel like when my parents pass, that will be really hard, mm-hmm. but, but, but really it's, it's been, mm-hmm. that has been the most significant. Yeah. And I mean, I think you will, I mean, unfortunately you will have, you will have been very well prepared because the whole like order of thing, like the, the natural course of the world is one in which, um, a, a child should be orphaned. Uh, mm-hmm. you know and and not the other way around where parents mm-hmm. are orphaned and uh yep. you, know, you having to go through that experience i think it will have unfortunately made you very you know not prepared but like at least ready for that yep yep yeah definitely yeah because i think um more so than losing your parents i think the death of a child is harder for mm-hmm. sure um you know not that my parents passing away won't be hard but um you know, I feel like, like you said, it'll, I'll be a little bit more prepared for that when it happens. Mm. So. Mm. And we talked about the legacy you want to leave, but have you thought about that transitional moment from life to death? Are there any experiences that, you know, you've had any near death experience, any imagination of what that transition of from life to death will look like or feel like? Um, I haven't thought a whole lot about it, but I remember as a child feeling scared about it, you know, like interesting. Um, you know, I had a conversation with my seven-year-old the other day and and he, I remember feeling the way he did in, or he does about, you know, not wanting, I don't want to die. Like who wants to die? Right. Mm-hmm. But as you get older and you go through these experiences, um, and knowing that I have something to look forward to it, I'm not afraid of dying. Of course, you know, I would like to be here, to raise, you know, the children that need me right now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I would, I would be sad if something were to happen to me because of them. Um, but you know, at some point when maybe they've all passed away, 
um, you know, I, I'm, it, death does not scare me at, at all. And I mean, I hope it's a peaceful death and not a, a tragic one, but, um, but yeah, I have no fear of, because I know that I will be reuni- reunited with my loved ones on the other side. So, and we'll talk about that. We'll move on to that prompt in just one second, but I just want to touch on this. Um, I think it's very beautiful the pragmatic awareness you have about the mortality of the medically fragile children that you have in your life. Um, I, you know, I, I mentioned to you, I adopted this dog and she's 11 and it's like, I, I know she's going to die. And I know that, that, you know, the, the the child that I have will probably not remember honey. I I hope Mm -hmm. that he does, but that's a very pragmatic awareness that I have. And that allows me to, to express love to her in a way that is different than assuming that I will have her forever. And um, I wonder mm-hmm. how does that color your relationship with these children? Um, you know, it's interesting because having gone through that, like people are like, how, how do you do it? How, why would you want to do that again? Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's going to come right back down to my faith based religion and what I believe in, and knowing that, you know, first of all, that everyone needs a loving home. Everyone deserves to have a loving home. Um, these children are no less um, deserving, you know, even though they have severe mental um, handicaps, physical handicaps. Um, but just the joy of like, there's just something about these children and their spirits are so pure and they're, they're just like contagious to be around. And so it's hard to think about losing them when I get to enjoy that every day. Um, obviously, you know, I do think about it and it's not something that I look forward to, but I know it will happen. But again, you know, it's this, this lifetime is for a short time, but you know, when they're gone in this lifetime, I will see them again. So, so perspective, a lot of perspective helps. Yes. You said, so, um, how do you finish that final prompt after I die? I want um, it's, I don't know, it kind of goes along with this, the third one. After I die, I want to see my children continue that legacy and just be good humans and to make the world a better place. So that's what I mostly want and to be able to see them again. You know, usually I would, uh, I would usually poke people a little bit more about this. Like, mm-hmm. what exactly do you mean? Like, you know, yeah. trying to like flesh out that, but I feel like it is very clear from, from what you, we've talked about already, like what that, and the depth of what that means is, is, is deeper than most. And I think truer, um, just by the, the lived example that you've had. Yeah. Um, do you, you know, with, especially when you're, you're talking about, you know, imagining the future deaths of the current children that you're caring for and, you know, imagining this, you know, future where you'll go on this wonderful vacation with your husband where you're also helping people in a humanitarian <laughs> way. Um, how far, and also un, and acknowledging the fact that you're not sleeping very much with the care of Liam, um, how far in the future do you think um, right now? Like how, like what's, what's like, when you, when I say future, what do you think? Of? Um... I, so you mean as far as like projecting, like going on this trip or 
I don't you know even that. know. Just like when, like, what does the vague idea of future mean to you? Like, did, do you do you think about it specifically around you? Do you think about um, the the children that you care for, your family, or do you think about like a wider circle of future, like the the, the plants in your area, like Lacone? You know what I mean? Like how, mm-hmm. like when when I say future, who does the future apply to? Oh, just uh, more so, more than just in the home, like affecting the people around me, obviously not the whole world because, you know, people on the other side of the world have no idea who I am, but just Mm -hmm. kind of that ripple effect of like the people that you interact with on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. you know, outside of your family. Yeah. And it seems to me that you affect them. You, you, you might not affect many people, but the people that you do affect, you affect deeply. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, that, and that's why I wanted to call talk with you, you know, because you're awesome. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this has and, been fun. Yeah, and so I know I know we got to go, um, but I just want to ask, uh, you know, for for this past hour, we've do- dove into a lot of really good stuff, um, and I really am thankful that you were able to we were carved this time out, and that you were able to be so vulnerable with me um, and the audience. And I just want to give you the last few moments, last few minutes to address the audience directly, whoever's listening, maybe somebody who has lost a child, maybe somebody who is thinking about adoption and fostering, um, or just somebody who's like, oh, this Becky lady is really cool. And I just want to hear uh, what, what word she, of wisdom she has for me. Um, the floor is yours. Oh, I would say, um, I mean, I've had a few people reach out to me about like the process of fostering to adopt, but that is like my biggest platform. There are so many children that need homes so many children, especially with like this drug epidemic, Mm -hmm. you know, so many babies are being taken away. And so, um, uh, you know, had I, had I known, obviously I wouldn't go back and change, you know, my biological children, but had I known maybe sooner, I wouldn't, I would maybe would have like adopted in between having biological children as well. But the need is just so great. And, um, it's the most rewarding experience that you can have. And, you know, I say that like a hundred percent, like, I don't know what could be more rewarding than, um, taking in a child that needs a home. So I encourage people to do it. <laughs> and I hope, I hope, uh, even myself that I will be able to step up to that plate. Cause it's, uh, it's a daunting idea just to take care of a child mm-hmm. that, you create, that you're growing yourself, you know, brewing yourself, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, that's a whole other, uh, you know, you know idea so yes thank you so much yes you're welcome so becky this has been a really great pleasure um i yeah thank you so much i appreciate you asking me to do this it's i was nervous but it's been a lot of fun so thank you Uh, this has been becky orden on death